Dr. Stephen Radelet is a world-renowned economist and global human development expert. He played a central role in shaping U.S. policy under the Clinton and Obama administrations, working as the chief economist of the U.S. Agency for International Development and the deputy assistant secretary of the Treasury. He now serves as the director of the Global Human Development Program at Georgetown University, studying the ways in which we can accelerate positive global development. Our country, without any question, has gained from globalization. No question about it. Anybody who's taken an economics course knows all countries gain from trade. And it's true, all countries gain from trade. But we make the mistake of therefore believing that all people gain from trade, and that is false. The right way to respond is to embrace those people, to invest in those people, to invest in their environment, and to give them a chance to do something else. In this live conversation with Ivy, Dr. Radelet outlines the tremendous progress the world has made towards improving global education, health, rates of poverty, and income, and how we can channel these patterns for a more positive future. Please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Stephen Radelet. I want to talk about big picture, what's been happening in the world's poorest countries over the last 25 or 30 years. Um, and the bottom line of what I want to talk about is this. We live at a time of the greatest progress amongst the global poor of any time in human history, by far. And by progress, I mean almost any dimension of progress you care to think about. Poverty reduction, improvements in health, access to education, reductions in violence and war, spread of democracy, uh, access to clean water. Almost any dimension of development that you care to think about, there has been more progress for hundreds of millions of people in almost all corners of the world over the last 25 or 30 years than any time in human history. And almost nobody knows this. And nobody knows this because we all pay attention to the bad news. We all pay attention to what's going wrong uh, in the world. Uh, I was talking to Zach earlier. Where is Zach? Where'd he go? He's in the back. We were talking a few minutes ago. And, and part of this is because bad news happens overnight. And so we pay attention to it. Good news happens over years and decades. And so we miss it. Uh, so I want to talk about this in a big, big picture. We're going to be talking about countries around the world. We're going to be talking over decades and try to step back and, and, and look at the forest rather than the individual trees and see what this is all about. Um, and so what I want to do is just look at a few slides that show some of the data um, on these different dimensions of progress, just to give you a little bit of the story of what's happening. I'm going to talk very briefly about why it's happening, uh, what, what happened to, to, to spur this change. Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about the future and just make a few comments about where this might go. Uh, and then we'll open it up for, uh, for your questions. So uh, I want to start by looking at, at, at uh, some dimensions of development. Uh, first, we're going to look at poverty. And we're going to look way back in time. I'm a good academic, so we've got to have graphs. We've got to have you know, Excel slides and all that sort of stuff. This goes back to 1820 to today. And this is a count of the number of people in the world living in extreme poverty, defined as incomes less than a dollar a day. Uh, controlling for inflation over time as best we can. So this is in real terms, constant prices, for those of you that remember a little bit of economics. But this is controlling for prices over time. As best we can, estimating the number of people in the world living under a dollar a day. In 1820, by our best guess, 900 million people were living under a dollar a day in today's, today's terms. In 1820, there were only about a billion people in the world. This is 90% of the world's population 200 years ago was living under a dollar a day. It, life was really actually pretty bad for the vast majority of people in the world. One meal a day, never three. 
You probably didn't have decent clothes. Never saw a doctor during your entire life. Wouldn't go to school. Didn't know how to read. A large percentage of the children in your family would be dead before the age of one, like about a third of them. Most people wouldn't live beyond the age of 40 or 50. It wasn't very pleasant, actually. And if you've forgotten about it, read a little Dickens. Um, and even, you know, the leading cities in the world, at least the Western leading cities of the world, in Paris and London, if you read, the, it was pretty bad, unless you happened to be a king or queen or royal or a few people that were the landholders, which is, of course, that's all we read about in our Jane Austen stories. But for most people, it was pretty miserable existence. So the number of people living in poverty was very high, and it rose with global population, because as we had more people in the world, more and more of them were living in extreme poverty. It wasn't rising as fast as global population, but it was continuing to rise. So we see this number of people living in extreme poverty rising and rising. And if we had data before this, there's no question in my mind that it would be rising from the beginning of human history. The number of people living in extreme poverty has been rising and rising and rising until World War II, the end of World War II. And for the first time ever, whoops, no, nope, not done with this one yet. Uh, the end of World War II, this number leveled off for the first time ever. And then starting in the 1980s and 1990s, it fell. And it didn't just fall a little bit. It fell astonishingly fast. So let's now look at the last 30 years and zoom in on the data uh, from 1981 to, to 2012. This red line is, again, the number of people using a more up-to-date poverty line. This is the World Bank's latest poverty line of $1.90 a day, so it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close. This is $1.90 a day in today's prices. This is the number of people living in extreme poverty. This is the percentage of the world's population. So the number is over here, the percentage is over there. There are about 2 billion people in the world living under less than 2 bucks a day until 1993. 2 billion people. 20 years later, we're down to less than a billion people. In 20 years, one billion people have been lifted out of extreme poverty. After that number rising from the beginning of human history, in less than two decades, it fell by one billion. Nothing remotely like this has ever happened in human history. A lot of this is China. It would be pretty bizarre if it wasn't a lot China. It's a pretty big country with a lot of people in it, and it's made astonishing progress. And a lot of this is India. But put aside India and China, about half of it is from other countries around the world. Smaller countries that are contributing less to this, but it's just as important for the people living in those countries. More than 60 developing countries around the world have made this change from the number of people living in poverty rising, leveling off, and now falling. Mongolia, South Korea, Indonesia, where I lived for four years, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Tanzania, Mozambique, Ghana, the Dominican Republic, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, around the world, something is going on. Because all of these countries, the number of, of poor have been rising and it has fallen dramatically in the last 20 years. So those are the basic poverty numbers. Now I want to switch to look at health. This chart shows the percentage of children in developing countries that die before their fifth birthday. In 1960, 22% of children in developing countries around the world were dead before their fifth birthday. One out of five, if you can believe it. 
It's completely unimaginable and unacceptable, but this is the way it was, not just in a couple of countries in Central Africa. This was for the world, for developing countries, just, uh, just two generations ago in 1960. That number has been falling remarkably quickly since then, and we're now down to about 5%. About one out of 20 children now die before their fifth birthday, which is also, frankly, unacceptable. But this percentage has fallen from 22% to 5%. That 17% change means that today, 17 out of every 100 children that are born in developing countries would have died two decades ago. They now live, and they live longer, and they live healthier, and they live with less poverty. They are not being born into misery as much as their ancestors were. They're actually being born into better lives. Again, we've never seen anything remotely like this in human history. And here's what's really remarkable about this. The poverty numbers I told you is about 60 countries in which poverty was falling, which means there's a, another 40 or 50 in which it's not. This is happening everywhere. And I mean everywhere. If you look at this statistic in 1980 and today, and compare it in every country in the world. The rate of child death has fallen since 1980 in every single country in the world. Period. I'm not going to say except, because there are no exceptions for countries where we have the data. The rate of child death has fallen in the United States, it's fallen in Finland, it's fallen in the United Kingdom, it's fallen in North Korea, it has fallen in Haiti, it has fallen in the Central African Republic, it has fallen in Congo. Name your basket case. This has fallen everywhere. I do not know of any socioeconomic indicator that has improved for every country in the world ever in human history, but this one has. This is a story about vaccines. This is a story about education uh, and, and people learning about uh, germ theory. Uh, this is a story about basic public health institutions, about better nutrition, about women being empowered and taking care of their children. This is a story of a lot of things happening. This is actually globalization at its best, at its very best, because you cannot get a vaccine from a factory in Indiana to a village in the outpost of Mongolia without the very best of private businesses, working with the U.S. government, working with the United Nations, working with local governments in Mongolia, uh, working with the clinics, working with the brave mothers who bring their children to get vaccinated. It is all of the best working together, and it has saved hundreds of millions of lives. And it's not just about children. We're seeing actually disease. This is just child death, but we're seeing many, many diseases, deaths from many, many diseases falling quite sharply. Deaths from tuberculosis are down by over half in the last 15 years. Deaths from malaria are down by over half. Deaths from HIV AIDS are down by over half in the last 10 years. How many people knew that? The deaths worldwide from HIV AIDS are down by half in the last 10 years. How many people knew that? A couple people, a few. How do we not know this? We all read everything about HIV AIDS. We all know about the incredible tragedy. We all know, and we all have friends, I assume, that have died from this disease. We have friends that are afflicted. I have a brother who's HIV positive. I have many friends that have died. We know all about that. But deaths have fallen by half and we don't know this. <laughs> it's the data are there. They're reported every year. And it's buried on about page 24, column C, the very bottom of whatever your newspaper is. And we don't talk about it because it's not a disaster. So 
That's the story on health. And this is translating uh, into longer life expectancy. So in developing countries, 1960, life expectancy at birth was 50 years, and now it's 65 years. People are living one-third longer lives today in developing countries because of that, the, the reductions in infant death and because of the, the, the fights in all of these, these different uh, diseases. So we've seen incredible progress in health in every single country in the world. Let me move on now to education. This few bar graphs here, but this is showing the average number of years of education that an adult has. Average number, so this is not enrollment rates, or this is asking an adult, how many years of schooling did you have? How many years did you go to school? And we'd all say, college, we'd say 16 years. Well, in developing countries, in 1970, the average was three and a half for all adults. It was four for men, 2.7 for women. That's what it was in 1970. So it was three and a half years. Today it's seven years. So the average adult in developing countries today has seven years of education. That's not much. It's a whole lot better than three and a half. And I don't know what this number was before 1960, 1950 in colonial times, but it wasn't higher. It was lower. It was maybe a year or a half a year. So this is not great, but this is enormous progress. This is hundreds of millions of people now getting an elementary school education. It's a start. And you can see the gap between men and women, but you can also see that this gap is closing, that actually the increase is faster for women because more and more women are getting educated. And we can see this by looking at uh, girls' education specifically um, in the next slide, which is a little slow because our brains are, are moving faster. But anyway, uh, this is the girls' completion rate, primary school completion rate. This is the percentage of girls uh, that are completing primary school in developing countries. And we're up now to 90% of girls in developing countries are now completing primary school. 90%. We've never been anywhere close to... This is enormously important. This changes everything, actually. When people ask me about the future, it's, this is the future right here. Because we know there's incredible evidence out there that when you educate a girl, that girl has more income earning opportunities. That girl gets married later. That girl has fewer children. Those children are healthier. Those children go to school. And those children have more income opportunities. And we got a lot of research now to show the incredibly powerful intergenerational impact of educating a girl. So we have already planted the seeds today for the next generation to actually be healthier and better educated uh, by educating girls uh, today. We're not there yet. It's 90%, means 10% uh, we still have to work on. The quality of this education is not always very good. Uh, girls face all kinds of safety and security issues in the schools when they're there. Uh, there are a lot of problems, but this is enormous progress and really opens up a window for potential going forward. So that's the education numbers. Now, I've done poverty, I've done health and education. Now we just go to average incomes. So not poverty per se, although this is related. This just shows a, a, a graph of the average income, GDP per capita, in all developing countries since 1960. And this accounts for inflation, accounts for differences in currencies and all that stuff that I get my students to take care of for me, my research assistants. And I've indexed the income here because everybody has different currencies to be all countries are equal to 100 in 1960. So we can just concentrate on the changes over time. So the average income, we just say 100. That's not $100, it's, not, it's an index of 100. It's just a starting point. 
We can see from 1960 to the mid-70s, incomes were growing in developing countries. Economic growth was happening, and incomes were growing. Uh, and this is post-World War II, the, the end of colonialization, some optimism spreading, and, and there's some growth going on. From the mid-70s to the mid-90s, this is flat. There's no economic growth for 20 years. The average rate of economic growth per capita in developing countries for 20 years was zero, zip. That's the average, which means half the countries was going down and half were going up. We know who were going up. Korea was going up, Taiwan, Indonesia, they were going up, but about half were actually going down for 20 years. This 20-year period was marked by dictatorship, war, violence, stagnation, all kinds of problems. This is why, this 20-year period is why people think that there's never any development progress, why developing countries are stuck, why there's, why there's famine everywhere, that they're all run by corrupt dictators, because for 20 years it was kind of accurate, actually, except for a few exceptions. It was a pretty bad time. And income did not grow for 20 years, and everything was a failure. And if you read books by Bill Easterly, my friend and colleague uh, up at NYU, or Dambisi Amoyo, they, all of their examples and data are drawn from this period. But it's over. It ended about 20 years ago. And starting in the mid-90s, incomes rose even faster than ever before. Putting aside, take out China, the average income in developing countries in the last 20 years has doubled. The average income for people around the world after inflation, excluding China, has doubled in 20 years. That's pretty extraordinary. That means that people have a better roof on their head. That means they've got more food for their family. That means they can put another child into school. That means when they're sick, they can go down and buy a little bit more medicine. They can put a tin roof over their head to keep the rain out. It's little things like that where people are able to do because their incomes are finally growing. Not everybody, <clears throat> but for most people. So that's the income story. This is the income distribution story. We all know that income distribution is getting worse everywhere around the world, except it's not. It's getting worse here, for sure. We got problems. It's getting worse in a lot of places in Western Europe, and it's getting worse in some developing countries, but not in all. As a matter of fact, in most, it's not. Poverty is falling, income is rising, and in most countries, income distribution is either getting better or it's not changing at all. This is just a count of countries. How many countries in the last 15 years, developing countries, has income distribution improved? 37. How many has it not changed very much at all? 22. How many has it gotten worse in 21? Okay, so I'm not gonna claim that income distribution is getting better everywhere. It's not. In China, it's getting worse. The coastal communities are doing pretty well. The inland communities in China are not. Uh, in India, it's actually hasn't changed much. In Indonesia, it's getting better. In Brazil, it's getting a lot better, actually. In El Salvador, it's getting a lot better. Depends on the country. So I'm not going to make a big claim that all is happy and, 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 and distribution is getting better everywhere, but I am going to push back on the assumption that income distribution is getting worse everywhere around the world because it's just false. This is within countries. Another way to think about it is distribution around the world. What's happened to global income distribution? Unequivocally has improved in the last 30 years. No question about it, actually. Not even close. Why? Because there's a billion Chinese and a billion Indians and a couple of hundred million Indonesians and Brazilians whose incomes are rising pretty fast. And if you think about that for two seconds, that means that global income distribution 
is getting better just because the bottom is rising, the bottom of the income spectrum is rising. Again, not for everybody, but for hundreds of, as a matter of fact, a couple of billion people, about three billion people whose incomes are rising uh, pretty fast and closing those gaps. Not completely, again, and countries are left out, but distribution is not as bad. Uh, global distribution is getting much better, and in many countries it's getting better as well. So that's the distribution. Now I'm gonna switch to a political story, democracy. This may have changed in the last week, but um, anyway, um, <laughs> this just counts the number of countries that are democracies using standards of democracy put forth by academic researchers. This is not a standard of the democracy that Bob Mugabe in Zimbabwe says, I'm holding an election, therefore I'm a Democrat. No, that's not quite the story. It's actually using a couple of indices on basic human rights, on the quality of elections, on the quality of the judiciary, on freedoms of the press, freedoms of speech, a bunch of different indices. And using that, in the 1970s, there were about 12 developing countries that could be claimed to be democracies, India, uh, Costa Rica, Mauritius, Botswana, and a handful of others. It was the rare exception. Matter of fact, most people thought poor countries could not be democracies. Uh, uh, there's a whole uh, chain of thought uh, uh, that countries can only become democracies after they've, they've come out of poverty, after they've actually achieved some basic level of income. And it was a kind of accepted progress, accepted notion that poor countries could not become democracies. Well, something happened around 1990, the same time that poverty started falling and income started rising, by the way. Something happened, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of countries became democracies, starting in Eastern Europe with the fall of the Berlin Wall, spreading through Asia, Europe, and Latin America. Just think about Latin America for a moment. 25, 30, 30 years ago, basically every country in Latin America was a dictatorship, every one of them. From Brazil to the Argentina, when the generals uh, attacked the Falkland Islands, to all of Central America, basically the whole continent was dictators. Today, they're all democracies. Except Haiti, Venezuela, there are a few exceptions. But the entire continent has flipped to democracy. Think of Asia. I lived in Indonesia for four years. I worked for the Suharto government. I worked in the Ministry of Finance for four years. Every day I went to work for a dictator because I was working with an economic team that was actually fighting poverty. And I lived with this, this, uh, this dichotomy of a brutal dictator who actually held the record for the fastest reduction in absolute poverty ever recorded in human history before China beat them out. They had an incredibly rapid, they had a great economics team, and I had to choose. Am I gonna work for them or not? And I did for four years. They were, it was a brutal dictatorship. Fast forward, last year there was an election when a furniture maker named Joko, who had been a small business owner when I was there, had, didn't know him, he was making furniture, uh, ran for president against Suharto's former son-in-law, guy named Subroto, former general. He's the guy who invaded East Timor, okay? Think about an Indonesian general named Subroto who invaded East Timor, and that's what he looks like. <laughs> Joko beat him. This furniture maker beat Suharto's son-in-law in a free and fair election in the largest Muslim country in the world. Indonesia is a thriving democracy today. And it has been now, that last election was last year, but it has been a, a, a democracy for about 15 years. Anybody who would have told me that when I lived there in the early 90s, 
that Indonesia would have been a democracy today, I would have told them they were idiots. No chance. No chance. But it has happened. And it's happened in Taiwan. It's happened in Korea, where the generals are gone. Uh, it has happened in, in South Africa, where apartheid is gone. It's happened in Tanzania and in Ghana. Uh, and in, in, uh, in Senegal, in Liberia, where Charles Taylor is in jail, and Alan Johnson Sirleaf is the president. This, this stuff was unimaginable 20 years ago. And that's what's happening in a slight majority of developing countries, not all. These democracies don't always work well. The elections are flawed. Too cozy relationship with big business. There's a lot of corruption. The courts don't always work well. And I'm actually not talking about Washington, D.C. I'm talking about <laughs> developing countries. These democracies are flawed. But I actually get really sick and tired of Westerners telling them that their democracy is flawed and expecting them to have perfect elections and perfect civil liberties and perfect rights. Because we don't. And we've been at this for 240 years plus. And we've had our share of nasty civil wars and genocides and civil rights abuses and the greatest civil rights abuse ever of slavery and all kinds of other things. And that's not to knock my country, even with the election of last week. It's to say, this is hard. This is really hard for a society to come together and figure out how to make decisions and to go forwards. And for countries uh, that are poor and don't have that institution, don't have those histories, have only recently come together as a country, it's doubly hard. But we are watching right in front of our eyes more poor countries than ever before try this great experiment with democracy. And some of them are going backwards, like Venezuela and like Thailand, and it looks like the Philippines and maybe Turkey. But others are going forward, as in Myanmar uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi, and Nigeria has recently become a democracy, and others. So it's up for grabs, actually. It's leveled off. It hasn't gone down, it's leveled off. And the future of democracy is up in the air, and it's frankly become more complicated in the last week. But Nothing like this has ever happened before. And it's something to cheer, and it is something to try to strengthen and to make sure it goes on in the future. So that's democracy. This is the one that nobody believes. This is the number of civil wars in developing countries, of active civil wars. We actually live in one of the most peaceful times in human history. And it's, it, there's actually no question about it. There's a great book by Steven Pinker up at Harvard uh, called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, where he documents world violence and war over like the last 500 years. It's a great book. It's about that thick. And I can only read about 10 pages at a time because it's so full of stuff. Um, but it's one of these books that I had on my coffee table for like a year because I keep reading like 10 pages and say, whoa, and then I'd put it back and then I'd read another time. <laughs> Look at that. Um, but there's really no question that we live in one of the most peaceful times in human history. It's gotten more violent in the last couple of years because of Syria. And I don't want to for a moment diminish the horrors of what's going on in Syria and in the Middle East, or in Yemen, or in uh, South Sudan, uh, or, in, um, uh, or in Afghanistan, or Ukraine, or the other places where there are active conflicts. But it's nothing compared to where we were 30 or 40 years ago, when almost all of Central America was at war with each other, when there were active conflicts up and down Latin America, where <laughs> Subroto had just invaded East Timor, where we had the aftermath of the Vietnam War and Cambodia throughout Southeast Asia, where in West Africa, Charles Taylor was running around chopping kids' hands off if they wouldn't become child soldiers in all of West Africa, was at war. Sierra Leone, Guinea, Ivory Coast, Liberia, it was a madhouse, where Southern Africa was in flames around the end of apartheid, 
that dragged in wars in what is now Namibia, in Mozambique, in Zambia, and everywhere else was engulfed in this war. Most of these, a lot of these, were hot wars that were a dimension of the Cold War. They were us fighting the Soviet Union in the guise of apartheid. Apartheid was all about anti-communism. Their one shred of credibility was that they were against the ANC, they were against the communists, and that's why my tax dollars supported the apartheid government. Right? And they went to war with everyone around them. When the Cold War ended, so did the violence. The day after the Berlin Wall fell, Frederick de Klerk called a cabinet meeting in South Africa and said, we're going to have to free Mandela. It took him one day to figure out the world had changed. Eight weeks later, Mandela was out of jail. Four, four years later, he became the president. And as that Cold War ended, the violence went way down in Southeast Asia. It went down across most of Africa. It went way down in Latin America. Colombia is trying to sign a peace agreement. They've negotiated now twice, renegotiated it this weekend. Did you see it in the news this weekend? You had to really dig deep, actually, really deep. But there it was. They've renegotiated a new version of this peace agreement. There's no active conflict in the Western Hemisphere. There's no active war. That hasn't been the case for a long, long time. In Asia, the great Asian landmass, there's a problem in Afghanistan and there's one in Ukraine. Otherwise, there's no active conflict, no war in Asia. It's actually pretty incredible. <laughs> it's actually pretty, pretty incredible. That's, not, again, not to diminish the problems we have, but something good uh, has happened. My last slide, I think. Yes. Uh, I just want to reinforce here that this progress, as great as it is, is not everywhere. So this goes back to income. This red line is one we saw before, although the scale is bigger, so it looks flatter. This is the average income across all developing countries again. This is the slide I looked at that said income had gone up, income had flattened out for 20 years, and then it had risen since 1995. It looks flatter because the scale is bigger. What I've done out of these uh, 109 developing countries where I have data is pull out the 25 countries with the fastest growth rates and the 25 countries with the slowest growth rates. So this is just to show the variance within this group. And we have these 25 developing countries, 25 really poor countries, where the average income was 100, again, as an index, and now is over 500, meaning the average income has gone up by a factor of five in two generations. The average person today has an income five times higher than their grandparents for a whole society. <laughs> it's actually astonishing. Nothing like this has ever happened. Of course, this is Korea and Taiwan and Singapore and Hong Kong and Botswana uh, and Costa Rica and uh, a handful of other countries that have done this. At the same time, here are the 25 countries with the slowest growth rates. And their income today is basically identical to what it was 50 years ago. It's been no progress. This is the Central African Republic and Somalia and a lot of countries in Central Africa. This is Haiti. This is Burma. This is North Korea. And that's the average of 25, which means there's about a dozen of them that are going down. The one that's gone down the most tragically is Zimbabwe, actually, under Robert Mugabe. Um, so I don't want to suggest that all is well and every place has made this great progress, but we live in a world where we have the greatest progress ever achieved by the global poor juxtaposed against a smaller number of countries that are not making nearly as much progress. So why did this happen? Well, I've already given you a couple of hints. The end of the Cold War was a big deal, which is a play out of hundreds of years of colonialism that led to then post-World War II 
the end of colonialism, but replaced by dictators that in many cases we put in place, to a generation later, finally with the end of the Cold War, those dictators getting thrown out in many countries. And finally, people in developing countries had the opportunities to go forward. The sort of hundreds of years of shackles of, of, of colonialism and dictatorship went away. That's one big thing. The second big thing is globalization. Global integration that gets vaccines to kids, that opens up trade opportunities, that moves financial flows, that moves information flows, that allows me to get on a plane and fly uh, to Hong Kong and back in four days, which I did in September, which I don't recommend to anybody, but I did it. Um, uh, that, that allows us to do all the things to connect with our friends and our family around the world, to move goods and services. And everything you're wearing and everything you've got in your pockets, I'm sure, is created by globalization and by connecting people around around the planets. And what that did was open up many, many opportunities again. Development is all about opportunities. And what globalization does is open up those opportunities. But it also, while it creates hundreds of millions of winners, creates a lot of losers. And we have not dealt with the losers in this country. This country has gained, now I'm going to talk about the United States for a minute. Our country, without any question, has gained from globalization. No question about it. Anybody who's taken an economics course knows all countries gain from trade. And it's true. All countries gain from trade. But we make the mistake of therefore believing that all people gain from trade, and that is false. Because jobs are lost, factories are closed, people have to adjust. That is the challenge, frankly, of capitalism. And that's the downside. But the right way to respond is to embrace those people, to invest in those people, to invest in their environment, and to give them a chance to do something else. What we've done for 30 years or more is ignore them. We've said, oh, too bad, the winners outnumber the losers, and that's too bad. And while we're at it, we're going to cut funding for education in this country. We're going to cut funding for infrastructure. We're going to cut funding for all of those ways that we invest in our people. And both parties, frankly, have a hand in this. I think it's more one than the other, but I do think it's actually both. And the chickens have come home to roost, frankly. These are great divides that didn't start a week ago. They started a long time ago. And there are a lot of people out there that feel disenfranchised and we have not dealt with them appropriately. So there are winners and there are losers, and I am absolutely convinced that globalization as a whole has been a great power for good change, but there are a lot of people left behind and we, as a society, are not dealing with them appropriately. So that's a second big force, and a third big force is a generational change, as I alluded to, within developing countries themselves, where the dictators are gone and new leaders have come to the fore. A whole new generation of leaders that are better educated, that are smarter, many of them educated in the West, in our own country, and are, and are bringing back some of those ideas and values. And again, the dictators are gone, and it is the leadership and the courage of the political leaders in developing countries, the business leaders, the church leaders, the NGO leaders, the youth group leaders that have taken on the old powers that have led to this kind of change. And those Forces together, I think, are what really began to change in the 1980s and 1990s to lead to this major surge in development. Now, turning forward, what's going to happen? I don't know. I told Zach earlier, if I knew it was going to happen, I'd be a stockbroker, and uh, or I'd be the bond market, as James Carville said. Um, but I'm not. So I can't predict the future. So what I do in this book, actually, is lay out three possible futures, because I didn't want to predict one, because whatever I predicted would be wrong. Uh, but I think there are three possible futures over the next uh, 20 uh, to 30 years for developing countries. One is that this progress basically continues. A lot of bumps along the road. 
two steps forward, one step backward, almost literally. Some countries will fall backwards, but others will progress. We'll make some advancements here, and, and other things will be problematic elsewhere. But the, the poverty rate, the number of people living in poverty is going to drop from 2 billion to 1 billion, already has. It can get down to 400 million, 300 million, 200 million. I don't think we can eliminate it, but we can, we can pull in, uh, several hundred more people out of poverty. We can get that child death rate down more. We can get more girls in school. It can be better school. That can absolutely happen. The challenges we face today are actually much smaller than the challenges we faced 50 or 60 or 70 years ago after World War II. That's one possible possibility. The second is that it's kind of over. It's going to not go backwards, not go forward. It's going to kind of stagnate and stabilize. And we get these gains and they're kind of consolidated, but we're going to see 20 years of not much progress one way or the other. And that's entirely possible. And the third future is that it goes backwards. And it goes backwards because we see a rise in violence. It goes backwards because of climate change and what it's going to do to the poor, to the very vulnerable people in developing countries that are just now eking out a living. And all of a sudden, the soil quality is going to be gone, and they, the water table is down. They're not going to get the water they need. The temperature's rising, and the crops are going to die. And we haven't done anything about it. And that's going to lead to more violence, and more extremism, and more unhappiness. Uh, and I think this combination of climate change and the possibility of a rise in violence, either from that or because of a rise of violence as China flexes, flexes its muscle or Russia uh, tries to do more, uh, that kind of combination of violence can stop this in a hurry. So which will it be? I don't know. But I know that none of those are fate. They are all choice. They are all a matter of choice, of what people decide individually and collectively as as our own societies, as our own individuals, as our own families, as our own governments, and as a community of governments, what we decide to do. And that may sound hokey, it may sound a little silly, but it's true. The world after World War II stood on the brink of disaster. We had fascism, we had Nazism, we had the threat of atomic weapons that had just been launched and nobody knew what to do with them. We had uh, China, the poorest country in the world, on the march. We had wars all over the place. What did we do? We put our heads together and we invested in vaccines. We invested in new plant varieties, the, the Green Revolution that brought hundreds of millions of people in Asia out of poverty because of technological advances. We came through with innovations in governance, things like the United Nations. What an audacious idea, actually. You talk about innovations, and I love my cell phone, but you want an innovation? The idea that countries around the world can get together in a room and fight and argue and throw things at each other and actually make some decisions and try to move forward and be somewhat civil about it and actually make progress and not go to war. And the associated institutions of the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO, all of which are flawed, but all of which are the idea that countries can work together to solve mutual problems. That idea did not exist 100 years ago. That is a big innovation. Going forward, that's the kind of innovation we're going to need. We're going to need those innovations in governance to figure out the next way that we can work together as a global society and what that new set of institutions looks like that gives more voice to China and Brazil and South Africa and solves a new generation of problems, not the ones that the UN was created for after World War II. It's a new day, new powers, new problems. How are we going to do it? We also need innovations in the technology sense. We need investments in heat-resistant seeds and plants and drought-resistant 
seeds and plants and how we can desalinate water more cheaply. I don't know how to desalinate. Well, actually, I do know how to desalinate water. You get the salt, you boil it, and the salt goes out of the water. It's not that complicated. If we can figure out how to bring the cost curve down on desalinating water, it changes everything in many regions of the world. we got a lot of water in the world. We've got plenty of water. It just has a lot of salt in it. How complicated are you going to be to get the salt out of it? It's not that. It actually takes energy. If we can solve the energy problem, we can solve the water problem. Can we solve the energy problem? Of course we can solve the energy problem. How? I don't know, but I know we can do it. I know we can do it. Some combination of things we haven't even thought about, and we're already moving in that direction. We're already moving in that direction. And if we can solve that and bring on uh, even cheaper uh, and, and, and different kinds of green energy sources to reach villages in developing countries, which they are already doing through solar panels and off-grid hydro and all kinds of stuff, we keep going in that way. It really changes things and opens up the opportunities for those girls that are now getting an education to bring their family to the next level. Can we do all that? Yes, of course we can do all that. Will we do that? I don't know. We may be stupid enough not to. And of course, I'm worried. More worried today than I was two weeks ago, that's for sure. But it is when times get tough that you've got to stand up and fight back, actually. It's because the problems that we face today are nothing compared to what people face in many of these countries. I was telling Zach earlier today, one of my students, an Iraqi Kurd, standing at a bus stop today. And when the guy next to him discovered he was Muslim, said, I hope you don't fucking blow me up, says to my student who's standing at a bus stop trying to go to school, and then went on an anti-Muslim rant. People around the world face this stuff every day. Much worse than what he's been evacuated several times from his hometown. I've seen deep, deep poverty and starvation and people living in refugee camps. The problems we face today are big, but they are not as big as what the world has faced before. And now is the time to actually push back harder and to fight back and to recognize that actually progress can be made if people fight for it and invest for it and stand up for what's right. We may be looking at several years ago and backwards, but that does not mean in the long arc of history, as Martin Luther King pointed out, that we can't get to a better place going future, going in, in the future. And I believe we can if we stand up for what's right, if we invest in what's right, um, and we push hard against the, the obstacles that stand in a way and work with people around the world. And the last thing I'm going to say is why this is important from the very self-centered national security interests of the United States. I don't think I have to say why this is good for a moral or ethical point of view, but I am going to say why this is important for the United States. Because the United States, from its own self-centered point of view, wants its own security, wants to fight climate change, wants to stop international drug networks, wants to stop migration, wants to stop the threat of diseases. It needs to help empower poor countries around the world who can help them in those fights. We cannot stop migration unless countries people in other countries get rich and feel they have political and economic opportunities. We cannot stop international drug networks unless we empower and strengthen those countries. We can't stop Zika and Ebola and, and, and uh, the H1N1 if we don't strengthen the public health systems in those developing countries. Helping these countries is good for us. India's rise is really good for us. 
I cannot think of anything better for that dangerous part of the world than to have a thriving democracy where people have economic opportunities. That is good for India. It will therefore be good for Pakistan, for Bangladesh, for Nepal, and for Afghanistan, and for, uh, and for Iran, just two countries over uh, to the west. Nothing will be better for that region than a thriving, open, democratic, prosperous India. This is in our interests, our very selfish interests, as well as the interests of India. So I think for our own sake, for the next 20 or 30 years, we need to figure out how to support this and try to make the world uh, an even better place. So with that, let me stop uh, and open it up for your questions or comments. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.